0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Barbara S. was 30 or so years old when Donald Trump hired her to be in charge of the construction of Trump Tower, his greatest achievement as a developer. During her time working for the Trump family, she witnessed firsthand the racism, sexism, xenophobia and odd behavior that he first hid, but now have become part of his image. And she tells that story in her new book from Gray Malkin Media called Tower of Lies What My 18 Years of Working with Donald Trump Reveals About Him. Barbara A. Riss joins us now. Welcome to our show. To be here. What year did you meet Donald Trump and under what circumstances?
1: I'm sorry, I, I didn't. When did I meet him?
0: Yes, so we have a pretty bad connection here. Maybe. Uh,
1: yeah, I'm surprised. I'm on a landline here. But let's um, see how it goes. I was working for a company called HRH Construction, uh, which did buildings in New York City. And I, um, uh, we got the job of the Grand Hyatt Hotel, and Donald Trump was the developer for, for the, the, uh, uh, the partnership of him and Hyatt Hotels. And I was assigned to that project. So I worked on the Grand Hyatt Hotel, and I met Trump there.
0: Now, actually, it was originally the the uh, Commodore Hotel that was being right. uh, transformed into the Grand Hyatt. Um, uh, and uh, what was uh, why was his work transforming the old dilapidated Commodore into the Grand Hyatt viewed as so important at the time? And by the way, maybe we could do something to improve that phone line. Uh,
1: okay. I don't know what to do. I'm not having a problem
0: now. Okay. Well, anyway, why was that considered important at the time? And how hands-off was he on the project?
1: Well, you give me a lot of questions at once. Let me answer the, why it was important. Uh, New York was in kind of a, a slump at the time, um, and that area around 42nd Street, around Grand Central Station, where the Commodore was located, was was in decline. It was not it was not in good shape, and um, the hotel itself was was totally in decline. It was they mostly empty with uh, some SROs, which are single-room occupancy people living there, and um, some, you know, trafficking of drugs and prostitution and stuff like that was all going on You're behind the scenes. It was, it was not a nice place. And uh, Trump was able to buy it, and he— took advantage of the fact that there were, everyone wanted it to be redone. He got a, an incredible tax deal out of, the, uh, out of the state of New York and the city. Um, and the timing was perfect. The timing was absolutely right, because that is when things started coming back. And he hit, he hit when things started coming back. And, and Hyatt made a tremendous splash, and it had a tremendous effect on 42nd Street. It was transformative.
0: Uh, how much interaction did you have with him during that time? You weren't working for him, as you said. You were working uh, for uh, a uh, another company that was working on the project. So did you have much interaction? What was your sense of him?
1: Well, I did have, uh, um, it turned out, quite a bit of interaction because I was uh, invited to attend the meetings that the uh, owner had with uh, the architect and the engineers and the general contractor, which is the effort for which I worked. Uh, so I would go and he would to meet each other in that, uh, in that circumstance. And I think he was uh, impressed by me uh, enough so that, you know, two years, later, he invited me to, um, to be um, the, the, well, the vice president and project manager on the uh, Trump Tower.
0: Hmm. But but you uh, witnessed uh, some odd uh, behavior by by him even then. Uh, Architects were afraid to challenge him, and although it was an ambitious project, it had to be done on a shoestring budget, uh, and uh, that caused troubles.
1: Yeah, Trump was extremely inexperienced at the time. Yeah. He, he knew very little about construction. I don't know what he knew much of about at that time. Anyway, not, not that I know that he thinks that he knows that much about anything right now. <laughs> um, so he, he wanted to do stupid things, like right? save things that weren't worth saving, and he forced us to save, uh, like for instance, equipment and machinery that we ended up having to take out after the fact, which cost. Twice what it would have cost if we just took it out to begin with, and and you know things like sandblasting the existing doors instead of getting new doors, sandblasting and painting. It's a stupid idea. It's got to cost more money. Well, you know he had no concept of what it would cost to do this project, and he got HRH to give him a budget. And I don't know that HRH wasn't uh, you know complicit in the sense that they knew that they couldn't build for the budget they offered, but. Um, It was uh, the kind of project where the general contractor uh, uh, sort of guarantees the price. So my introduction to the the project, and I talk about this in my book, uh, was the the day I started, um, I saw the chairman of the board of my company um, walking around. And I knew him, but I didn't think he knew who I was. And uh, we were in the office, and he walks over to me, and he hands me the contract. He doesn't even say, like, hi, I'm every official, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he says, read this. Read it every day. Make mm-hmm. sure that every single thing that you do is in accordance with this contract. And if it's not, I want a record of it. Because this bastard is going to sue us. That's, that's sort of what he said.
0: He already had a reputation for suing people.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I guess he did. Yeah, even even in that at, at that point in time, 1980. Uh, but you know, I, I, Fred Trump was his father, and you know Fred Trump had an alliance with uh, certain people in the city, and yeah, he was well known, and he was known to be ridiculously cheap. Um, and, and Donald came up in his footsteps, and he was stupidly, foolishly cheap. So well, after a short period of time where change orders were coming in right and left and, and there was just no control of them, which is logical on a dilapidated hotel, you can't know what you're going to encounter until you take the ceiling down, until you take the walls mm-hmm. down. He finally realized that it was in his best interest not to hold HRH to a given price, but to have them be a construction manager and, and let, him, let them hold all the subcontractors to a given place, and that was the way we ended up doing the job. So there was no opportunity for him to sue us, and he didn't sue anyone on that job.
0: But despite what you saw, you went to work with for him as a vice president of the Trump organization, and he wrote in The Art of the Deal, you quoted in your book, quote, the person I hired to be my personal representative overseeing the construction, Barbara Ress, was the first woman ever put in charge of a skyscraper in New York. She was 33 at, at the time half the size of most of these bruising guys, but she wasn't afraid to tell them off when she had to, and she knew how to get things done. Now, you obviously had learned a bit when you were a project manager at HRH. How did you even get into the business?
1: How did I get in?
0: Yeah, because you you have a law degree, you have all sorts of other things that you've done over the years.
1: Well, don't forget that that was when I was starting out. I when I I was 22 when I graduated from college with an engineering degree, and you know people don't believe it when you hear it now because engineers are so much in demand, and so well paid. There were no jobs for electrical engineers, no jobs. Um, people, my my uh, kids in school that I went to school would be going into insurance and and taking jobs as managers supermarkets and things like that. Really. There were just no jobs, and so I had a a summer job with an electrical contractor that my sister had gotten for me. She worked for a very big general contractor, and she knew everybody, and she got me this job, and I did it in the summer, and I just stayed there. I worked part-time while I was still in school, and then I came back full-time after I was out, so I was working for electrical contractors for about five years, and then I got into general contracting.
0: And after he hired you, he put you in charge of the construction of Trump Tower on, on Fifth Avenue. Uh, what was his vision for the building at the time? What did he tell you he wanted to be like?
1: He said it was going, well, you know, let me say he said it was going to be the greatest building in the world. And and of course, you know, that's that's absolutely true that he would say something like that. But he did um, he did think that it was going to have an impact on the city of New York. We were doing some things that were sort of first, like um, there was a retail uh, sort of shopping center in in the building, the first six floors, the basement, first five floors, and um, that had never been done really in a building before, not without some kind of an anchor store. There was a um, I think Water Tower in uh, Chicago was the first uh, and and at the time only building to have retail stores on the inside Mm -hmm. and um, of of any, uh, you know, major retail stores. And uh, they had Macy's, I think, as an anchor or or Bloomingdale's, a a big store that was also there. We were just going to be small shops and it was going to be super luxury. And I'm not talking like, you know, Brooks Brothers. I'm talking about super, super luxury. Mm -hmm. And... uh, you know, he was going to do an office building, which was sort of filling in the floors between the retail and the apartment buildings, in my opinion. Uh, the apartment was what it was all about. It was going to be, in his words, the most luxurious part, uh, apartments built anywhere, certainly in the United States and most certainly in New York. And it was going to be a very special project. And, and it was. It turned out to be a very special project in um at the moment in time when it was being built, it was probably the most important project being built in New York.
0: Now, he, uh, his reputation as a sexist and womanizer goes way back. Was it already something uh, that you might have been aware of then? Uh, but, but despite that, he's hired many women for senior level, highly visible positions, in, including you. And you uh, handled every payment, contract, hire, question, issue, and problem uh, w- with the building.
1: Well, you know, uh, at the time, he, he, he probably was uh, more of a sexist than I was able to discern by his treatment, uh, because certainly his treatment of me was not sexist at all, except mm. when he hired me, he did tell me one thing which was questionable, and I didn't really question it until recently. I, I sort of took it on, on face value. He said to me, men are better than women, but... Ooh. A good woman is better than ten good men. And, you know, I thought he probably means that as a compliment. Um, And maybe he even thought it was a compliment because to tell a woman she's as good as a man, in his mind, is is a big deal because he does believe that men are superior to women. And um, so he told me that he thought I was a killer and again, I didn't know what that meant until recently when I learned really that's a Fred Trump term, and that's the best thing you can be. Being a killer is the best thing you can be. And um, he liked women that were killers because mm-hmm. he thought that they were as good as men, and he knew one thing that's not true about men at the time, and unfortunately today. They work harder, they work smarter, and they work for less money.
0: On the but, other hand, you, you say that he told you after the completion of the Trump Tower... You know what's wrong with you, Barbara? You want people to like you.
1: Well, yes. It was actually um, not so much at the pussy. And yeah, I guess so. Uh, He told me that. And um, I had uh, complained about somebody who was working for us that he hired who was just not good. And and one of the things about him that was the worst thing about him was everybody hated him. They couldn't stand him. And Trump could not. You know, it's funny because it's like um, it's a, a... contradiction in a way because he carries on about how much everybody loves him, but um, he believes in fear, not, not uh, um, you know, uh, admiration or, or um, you know, any affection. And yeah, I told him when he said that to me, I said, you know, if people didn't like me, you never would have gotten this building open on time. And that was absolutely true. They didn't do a fam. It did it for me, and, and the you know the crew that I had built, and you know while we worked together and we, we all uh, held in together, um, working around the clock to, to make a deadline, an impossible deadline to help Trump Tower.
0: What was his reputation among your co-workers? Uh, wasn't it difficult at times to get him to concentrate and and focus on issues?
1: It was always difficult to get him to focus. Um, he had in his mind what he thought was important. And you sort of can see it today, even though it's like a, a very, very different and, and much more serious situation. He doesn't think COVID's important. And he doesn't pay attention to it. What he thinks is important is, you know, is uh, ranting about uh, having been cheated out of the election, which we can go into if you want later. But um, So if he thinks something's important, he'll pay a little bit of attention to it He'll get to learn it. But um, he's not a good judge of what's important because he doesn't really know what's going on. And why doesn't he know what's going on? Because he's inattentive. He doesn't pay attention to it. It's kind of a vicious cycle. Uh, but in order to get him to focus on something, you would have to, uh, you know, p- put it together in short. A memo, for instance, would be a bunch of short paragraphs uh, and not too many. Um, when you had to tell him something, let's say you had ten things you had to tell him, you would pick the top three, because that's mm-hmm. the law you're going to get. And, you know, you might need an hour to explain something, you're going to get five, ten minutes at the most. And, and that, that's the way he was. So, you know, that was um, uh, difficult to deal with, but, you know, everybody worked out their own way of dealing with it. But in terms of the perception of the other people in the crew that were not, you know, people that dealt with him all the time, people that weren't executives, you know, it, it, it depended on how well you knew him. If you knew him pretty well, you didn't like him particularly. Most people did not like him. If yeah. you were some guy in the field with a hard hat on and, a, you know, a hammer or a, a drill or something in your hand, you thought, oh, he's a great guy because he'd walk around and say, oh, you guys are doing great. You are doing This is the best building in the world. How you doing? Oh, what can I do for you? That kind of thing. <laughs> totally phony, um, uh, but, but, you know. He went around uh, and, and got himself a reputation, which he bragged about, that the people uh, really liked him. But the people are
0: listening. I, Just let me tell people that they're listening to Let It Locate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. And my guest is Barbara A. Ress, R.E.S., her book, Tower of Lies What My 18 Years of Working with Donald Trump Reveals About Him. Uh, finish what you were saying. I'm sorry.
1: Oh, no, just, uh, that, you know, talking about how people perceived him. And, you know, the people that didn't know him at all thought he was, you know, he was very charming, charming mm-hmm. guy. And, now uh, you
0: you witness his impulsiveness because he places emphasis on trusting his gut. You say that rather than study or learn about a particular issue, uh, he'll instead make a decision based on pure instinct. Uh, it, well, doesn't that kind of thing backfire a lot?
1: Well, you know, he used to do that kind of thing when I worked for him back in, I worked, like, say, in the 80s and early 90s. Um, but he had people around him that wouldn't let him do stupid things. Really, we wouldn't. You so know, you yesed
0: it, him and then just ignored what he was saying?
1: Well, it depends. Sometimes we went up against him and told him you can't do it. Other times we yesed him and just didn't do it. And sometimes we did what he said that was stupid, knowing we'd have to fix it. So, uh, what uh,
0: what did he do when he realized his instructions were being ignored?
1: <laughs> hmm. I guess he sort of went with the flow. I mean, in terms of anything that he told me to do that I didn't do, he he just knew that he, it was I was doing the right thing.
0: And how did um, you have... How did you handle him when he tried to skirt the law or suggested a crazy idea?
1: Well, you know, the thing is, and this is true today as it was then, I, for the most part, he knows the truth. And he knew that some of the things he was talking about doing were, were just unle- uh, not legal. And what was he doing? He was venting. He was taking the opportunity to, uh, to uh, uh, intimidate and, uh, and scare people that were afraid of him. And that made him feel good, better about himself. But I think he knew in the long run it wasn't going to happen back then. Now he thinks he can do anything. And there's nobody that's going to tell him he can't. So he does do these ridiculously stupid things like threatening the secretary of state of uh, uh,
0: Georgia. Now, your book is far more personal than political. Was political talk or discussions about social issues a part of, of your working relationship?
1: Uh, political, not so much. He was uh, a Democrat, and I, you know, my, my feeling about the political involvement, at least when I started with him, was about raising money for, for people to run for elections, and and I did a lot of that for the contractors. Uh, but we talked about social issues all the time, all the time.
0: But Roy so Cohn wasn't around at that time.
1: Was what around? Roy Cohn. Oh, yeah, McComb was there from the beginning, yeah.
0: Well, he sure wasn't a Democrat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, powerful people, not only Trump, uh, you know, they they go where the wind is blowing. And and oftentimes, like later on, he was giving money to everybody. Uh, But um, the Democrats were in power at the time that, that he was building Trump Tower. And um, his father was part of the Democratic machine in Brooklyn. So, I mean, you know, it was a, a Roy Cohn, I, politics don't matter. It you know, who you're voting for doesn't really matter. It's, it's what you can do and how you can manipulate the system. So with Roy Cohn, I, the fact that they may have been claiming publicly to be supporting different uh, platforms doesn't mean that they weren't very close. They were extremely close.
0: What about the mob? It's been said that he made deals with the mob to get that building done.
1: Yeah, you know what? I don't believe that for one minute. I don't think he made any deals with the mob or anything like it. We had a general contractor, and they did that kind of thing for us.
0: Now, Trump has favored people until they don't do what he wants, and then they're cast out publicly, usually on Twitter. Was he like that when you worked on him? Obviously, there was no Twitter at that time.
1: No, he wasn't. He wasn't so much like that. Um, he didn't fire people much. I mean, you know, it was a joke if you had a job with Trump, and and, and it was going to be him that would have to fire you. You'd never you'd, you'd have a job forever because he couldn't do it. You know, he would always lay it off onto somebody else. And um, you know, if you were in a position where that couldn't happen, he he wasn't going to fire you. What he did was he abused people. He tortured. He sensed that weakness and he just blew it up. And you saw him doing that with Jeff Sessions for a long time before he before he, uh, lowered mm-hmm. the uh, the boom. He he kept calling him names and saying he was incompetent and calling him whatever, a sissy or whatever. And and that's the kind of thing that he sort of did when I was there. Not not really fire people. But it wasn't people that didn't do what he said, because I didn't do what he said a lot of times, and we never had any any question of that happening with me. It was more people that he just sensed weakness in.
0: Will You give examples of some of the ideas, uh, of his ideas on ways to cut corners or ignore the law. For example, a conversation he had with the architect during the, the Plaza Hill uh, Hotel renovation regarding handicapped stalls in bathrooms and bathrooms and Braille on the elevator control panel.
1: Well, the Braille was in Trump Tower, and the handicapped stores were in the plaza. Um, at the time when we were building the, the plaza, we knew that the handicapped stalls were coming. They weren't part of the law at that moment in time. And when we uh, suggested them, uh, I guess he saw the plans, and why is this wider, why is this you know, partition uh, wider than, than the others, and it's for handicap? No, 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 you can't do that, blah, blah, blah. So what we ended up doing, because it wasn't required, was we, we created a kind of like a unisex room um, where where peop that was handicap uh, friendly, and that that would have fulfilled the needs for any kind of um, you know um, uh, concession to to people that needed special facilities. But on Trump Tower. Um, you had to do Braille in the elevator. It was in the city code. As you know, people that are not friendly to me like to go around and say that what I said was untrue because there was no law. The law of ADA or whatever, the Americans with Disabilities Act, didn't come into effect until well after that or, you know, sometime after that. But, in fact, it was the city law. And the law was that you had to have Braille in elevators. So he says, What's this? He's looking at the at a picture of the panel or a drawing of the panel where you you know, you press the numbers and he says, What's this? What are these little dots? And the architect says, Bro I'm not having bro in this building. There are no there's not gonna be any blind people living in this <laughs> building <laughs> carrying on. But of course we did it. We of course. I mean it wasn't a question. Nowadays when he says do something and it's not legal, people do it. And so far have gotten away with it.
0: I wonder about the lying, uh, which seems to be extremely common. For example, he says the Trump Tower is 68 stories high when it's only 58. Why would he even make a claim that's like that, that's so easily proved wrong?
1: Well, to be honest with you, that's not such a great lie because you get in the elevator and the top floor is 68. What he did was he added 10 floors to the building. Uh, and he did that in the Hyatt, too, but not 10 floors. I think he added six floors in the Hyatt um, just by changing the numbers on the, on the, um, on the, on the floors in the elevator. Yeah, you went from 6 to 14 or uh, something like that. Um, so that wasn't like a really big lie, but everything that he did was a lie. He said Trump Tower is the tallest concrete building in New York. Hmm. Totally not true, not even close. Um, you know, things like that. I think I mentioned somewhere, um, he said Ivana was uh, an Olympic skier. And, you know, she wasn't anything like an Olympic skier. But he would tell these stories. and You know, you reach a point where you start out believing him. You know, you work for somebody, he's paying you a good salary, you respect him or you wouldn't go to work for him. And he tells you something, you believe it. Of course you believe it. And then after time, you realize that most of what he said, or a good deal of what he said, was not true and when it was important to you to know the truth you had to go elsewhere you had to check with other people just to make sure.
0: You also say that his intelligence is limited and he's very insecure about that that's something that you figured out along the way
1: somewhat you know he used to brag about his, uh, his credentials. At, oh, He's uh, the most
0: brilliant man in the world he knows he knows all about I don't know nuclear power and everything else
1: yeah, he wasn't. He didn't say that. No, not, not at all. I, I don't think he... You know, there, there was a metamorphosis. And I talk about that, more why my book is valuable is that uh, think, predicted, and, and sort of, in, in a way, his, his behavior predicted what happened uh, eventually. And it changed over time, and it changed as he got more famous and more powerful until he reached a point where he now does, does believe, and I do think he believes that he is a very, very superior intelligence. I do think he believes that. Does he believe that he knows more than the scientists? I can't imagine that he believes mm-hmm. that, no. no.
0: Over the 18 years that you worked with him, how many projects did you work on together?
1: Uh, well, you know, it was we did the, we did the, um, some Tower And then, um, I left there and I went to work for Hudson Mountain. I did another project for somebody else because we wasn't doing anything else. And then he started working on the West Side Yards and, uh, He had, um, it's complicated, and I'm not going to go into a great deal, but he had uh, an interest in Alexander's department stores, and he was the developer of uh, of any property that they had. That was a lot of jobs. And when I went back to him, that was what I was in charge of. I was in charge of all the Alexander's projects, and I worked on the West Side Yards, but I wasn't in charge of that. I was just, you know, contributing anything from a construction point of view. You were a bit of
0: fair... Oh, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. That's all right. There have been a fair amount of, of bankruptcies. Was that an issue while you were working with him?
1: No. No. You know, people say he always lost money. He didn't always lose money. He made quite a bit of money in the beginning when I was there. Except that uh, he, but he was,
0: was paying taxes.
1: Well, that's another story altogether. But, you know, he was making money in the casinos at the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: he made a ton of money on uh, Trump Tower ton of money, and he had a partner, an equitable life, um, and they they made a lot of money off, you know, off, off, I say off of him, I should say off of me. Did <laughs> you have much
0: interaction with his wives and his children?
1: Oh, his wife, yeah. Um, don't forget that I was not there um, uh, full-time when he married uh, Marla. I went to the wedding, and I met her a few times, but no, but Ivana... Oh, yeah.
0: Vana and I were together all the time. Uh, there are rumors that she's thinking of uh, having a political career.
1: Vana or Ivanka?
0: Oh, no. That's a, I'm sorry. That's Ivanka, yeah. Ivana was the wife. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you had the, 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 uh, the two boys as well, didn't you?
1: When I left the organization, uh, the, the, the kids were still little.
0: He once said that only a masochist could enjoy the construction business, but uh, you point out that he learned from his father how to run a real estate operation, building low and and mid-rise apartment complexes, collecting rent, cultivating powerful politicians, the skills that had made his father rich. And he also learned from his father how to cut corners, cheat contractors, and mistreat workers. So you knew him in a way that even his niece, Mary Trump, didn't.
1: Yeah, that, that's very true. I, I think that, you know, when you take her work and, and mine and maybe another author, you've got Donald Trump down, you know, fun line and, uh, you know, and center. Uh, but um, he wasn't always, again, you know, he he, he he didn't know anything about construction, really. I, I You know, I, maybe he walked a few jobs with his father. Um, and saw concrete being poured. But it wasn't, you know, the kind of building that you do when you're building high rises. But he did know about real estate. And he was involved in the real estate, running the real estate operation for Fred Trump in the Trump buildings before he came into New York and, you uh, you know, came out on his own as a developer.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm anxious to uh, get back to my conversation with Barbara Ress, but Uh, I have to take just a few moments to ask you uh, something very important. I I need to ask you to become a member of WBAI. Uh, We're asking our listeners to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. Again, that number is 516-620-3602. Or you can go to give to WBAI.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And I'm delighted to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Letters Low paid at Large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we're discussing on today's show, Tower of Lies, what my 18 years of working with Donald Trump reveals about him by my guest, Barbara S. But whatever level you're able to show your support for this show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. Our listeners are our only funding source, so we need you to help keep independent 100% listener-funded radio alive on the New York radio dial. And if you've supported the station in the past and your renewal has lapsed, please consider this your renewal notice. But but all joking aside, we do need your support now more than ever. And don't forget to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopin at large. From all of us to everyone who has contributed so far um, or is doing so right now, thank you so much. So now I wanna get back to my guest, Barbara A. Ress, her book, Tower of Lies, What My 18 Years of Working with Donald Trump Reveals About Him. Barbara? Yes. Uh, we got still got lots to talk about. Um, uh, were you surprised? Well, how, how and why did you decide to leave the, the Trump administration organization after having worked with him for 18 years?
1: Well, you know, I, I worked on the Hyatt, like I said, and uh, that was uh, HRH. And then I went to work for Trump, and I did uh, the, the Trump Tower. So that was six years total between those two. And then he wasn't doing anything else. And I was antsy, and I didn't want to sit around finishing up uh, 5,000 square foot tenants in the office building when I had built the, the whole thing for you know myself. Uh, so I left. And I went to work for Leonard Stern, and I did his building on uh, 67th Street. And at that time, I... Um, I didn't, you know, he wasn't doing anything else either, so I was getting antsy again. So I called Donald, and I thought, you know, I'll talk to him and see what ideas he has for me. And I I went to him, and he he says, come back, you know, and I'll I'll keep you busy. And so I went back, and I stayed with him for another uh, four or five years. And um, we were working on um, a project in California, which is a big You know, we could go on forever about these projects, but it turned out to be a massive condemnation lawsuit. And um, he brought me into this, uh, back to this. uh, Not that I left physically, but I was mostly working on California, and he brought me back to uh, to the New York scene by putting me in charge of the West Side Yards. The uh, the person who was in charge of that left uh, to be uh, chairman of the board of some real estate uh, company. And uh, the opening was there, and Donald gave it to me. I wanted to be in charge of this project. It's was a massive, massive project. turned into Riverside South. It was Television City, and then it was Trump City, and it ended up being um, Riverside South, which is apartment buildings. And um, I worked on that for a while, and we were going full steam ahead with our plans, and it turned out that Trump, and this is another story in my book, uh, was approached by um, the people that were objecting to him. Uh, and they were, they were very powerful. They were big names, important political people, actors and movie stars and stuff like that, that were opposed to building what we called Trump City at the time. And um, they had the ear of the city government, and we were being stalled. Long, long time in, in, in the, the uh, Department of Environmental Protection, which you, should, you shouldn't be there for more than six months a year on the outside, and we were there four years. And he was approached by someone who said, Donald, you're never, ever going to build this, so give it up. Give it up. If you want to build anything, you sit down with these people and you negotiate and you agree on something, and we will go together with you to the city, and it will happen. And to his credit, he bought that. Um, he believed it. Uh, now, at the moment in time, he was, he was facing bankruptcy, and he had to do something to make himself... Um, more valuable to the banks, and so by making this deal, he could say, all right, look, I got this approved, basically. And it was just a matter of paperwork, whereas before, when we were proposing the West tolls Building and everything, it was still speculative. So he made this deal with these, what we call the civics. It was a group of um, uh, local uh, uh, people that were organized. Uh, some of were organized specifically to oppose his project, and others were like the uh, you know, the Riverside South, uh, Riverside um, Park um, organization, or the municipal uh, organization, the Municipal Art Society, and the Regional plan. Organ- these were well-established uh, groups that had a lot of influence, and they were opposed to it. So we had this group of civics, and he made a deal with them, and um, the deal was to change the name of it, to change the plan of it, to eliminate in the office, eliminate any hotel, uh, eliminate any major retail. And um, as part of the agreement, they were going to appoint somebody to be the head of the project. And that was not going to be me, because I worked for Trump. So I uh, decided it was a good time for me to leave and go off and find Greener Pastures.
0: But you didn't re- receive severance, and you never signed a nondisclosure agreement, which of course is, has allowed you to write this book.
1: Yeah, certainly. And, and um, there was no need to. I mean, you know, like I said, I left with my own volition. Um, and uh, what happened was he was still involved in the California Project, which was becoming a big deal. And he was involved still in the Alexander Project, and they needed me. So what happened, I became a consultant. And I worked as a consultant for, I don't know, maybe six or seven years. So that brings it up to about 18 now I was working on the California Project, and it was going to a, to a head in this a big lawsuit. and um, one of the people that was a partner in the uh, in the group, Donald ran the project, but he had partners and he was only a twenty percent interest from financially. Um, one of them approached Donald and he said something and did something and suggested that we make a move that I was opposed to. And Donald went along with this guy, and I, I was vehemently opposed to doing what he did. It backfired, and I knew it would. I mean, you know, it, it had to. Uh, so we ended up uh, being in worse shape than, than we could have been, uh, and we had a very big meeting one day with the partners in New York City and in the, in the real um, uh, boardroom in Trump Tower, and uh, he went off on me. He blamed me for everything. It was all his fault they blamed me for everything. And uh, call me names and you know stuff like that, which I had seen him do a uh, hundred times with people that worked for him, but never me in eighteen years. He never did that to me. Um, and I actually was very, very disrespectful to him. In a way, I should I, more so than I should have been. But I was so taken aback by what he was saying. You know, I was engaged. I'm I'm a street fighter in some some ways. Um, after the meeting was over. Um, I said goodbye to the people, you know, because they were from California, from Europe, you know, stuff like that. And then I went back up to his office and I quit. That was it. Goodbye.
0: Uh, now, we you said that he was a Democrat originally, but it's obvious from some of the things that happened later that he was changing his politics. For example, uh, his uh, campaign against the Central Park Five. Uh, and uh, what was your reaction to Trump's radio interview on WOR hours after the attacks of, of September 11th?
1: You know, I, um, I, I know him, and I know that he would. Um, I don't remember exactly what he said in that particular interview, but I imagine some of it had to do with him owning a building downtown. And now that those buildings were knocked down, he'd have the tallest building, mm-hmm. um, which is probably as crass as as anyone could be, but you know, think back, just dial back, uh, you know, several years to when he had um, three very, very uh, top executives, uh, two of which were the top, top executives of the uh, Atlantic City uh, uh, operation, were killed in a, in, a, in a helicopter crash, and you know, his reaction to that was, I was almost going to be on that plane at the last minute. Something came up, and I had to get off, or I was on, almost on the helicopter. So he diminished what—he took an opportunity to turn the news about his three dead, loyal employees into a, it was a group of close uh, brush with them. Uh, I couldn't believe that he could do that. So when he takes the, the Twin Towers and says, now my building's the tallest, so it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense that he would do something.
0: Were you surprised when some of the other uh, revelations came out about him uh, with porn stars and uh, that, uh, and the time that he talked about grabbing women's genitals and getting away with it? Uh, yeah. Th- th- you were think... gone by then, right? What's that? You were gone by
1: then. Oh, yeah, I was gone. Long gone. Um, I was, I'm not surprised by the playboy or the, or the porn star or anything like that. Uh, I was surprised by the remarks about um, you know um, that he made to Billy Bush on that Inside Edition, I think it was. Uh, I never heard anyone talk like that. I got to be honest with you. I guess that makes me a little naive or something. And I lived in construction all my life. I never heard anyone talk like that. And I was surprised.
0: You say you thought it was a stunt when he announced that he was running for president.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Why would he run for president? I mean.
0: Well, I'm still asking that question.
1: Yeah, How could he possibly believe, and this is putting on uh, the, the cap of a normal person, uh, you know, uh, and, and thinking like a, a, a normal person would think like we all thought in 2015. What the hell, heck is he doing? How could he possibly think? And of course, you know, everybody knew it was a, it was a, it was a branding uh, uh, project for him. Because his name was, you know, uh, his name was what he was building his fortune on now with The Apprentice being over. Uh, He was selling his name to people to build so-called luxury buildings and call them Trump buildings. And, you know, so this was just broadening his name and giving him more power. He ran for president of the United States.
0: He also had a television show that gave him prominence. There was a a television series about New York in the 80s and 90s, in which uh, which ended with Trump and Rudy Giuliani, uh, not uh, in the best of shape, but he recovered. In fact, both of them did to some degree. Although yeah. I, I can't imagine Rudy Giuliani's life after uh, after uh, Donald, he's no longer Trump's lawyer.
1: Yeah, and Giuliani is, is nothing but a clown. I think anybody that has any self-respect would say that. Anybody that's intelligent, anybody that's uh, uh, moral, uh, would, would say that Giuliani is not worth, he's worth nothing. He's, he's a useless person. Uh, as far as Trump is concerned, people have their reasons to support him. Um, you know, he took the, 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 um, the, the shackles off of uh, any kind of uh, 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 business in terms of, you know, being required to follow um, regulations that the country uh, imposed on them by doing away with the regulations. Mm. And you know, people don't even know this because he's done so much harm that you can't keep track of it. It's like keeping track of his laws. He has changed or eliminated so many of the regulations that protect not only the environment, but people, regulations that protect people. And you can see it with the COVID, his influence on this COVID, allowing um, uh, uh, companies to, to force their workers to work when, when, when they were being exposed to this horrible disease. You
0: wouldn't but, when done... he, but he got away with regulate, avoiding regulations in a lot of different ways. Uh, in Atlantic City, uh, you were only allowed to own uh, two casinos, and he uh, I think he wound up with four before the whole thing fell apart.
1: I forget there was a nuance to that, but since I wasn't, involved in Atlantic City directly. I, I don't know the details, but I will say this. In terms of breaking laws and breaking regulations, he did that regularly. And why? Because what was the punishment? And that's part of the problem with our brilliant uh, legal system. You've got two things going on in the United States, and you've got laws, but there's no real punishment for not following them. And you've got laws, and there's nobody looking to see if they're being obeyed. So, of course, a guy like Trump would uh, would make the most of that. And, you know, what would he get, a fine? He'd do something that would end up making him a million dollars, and he got a $20,000 fine, I mean, you know. And he, bragged,
0: and he bragged that he could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and get away with it. Uh, my guest is Barbara A. Ress. She written a book called Tower of Lies, what my 18 years of working with Donald Trump reveals about him. It's published by Gray Malcolm Malkin Media. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You supported Hillary Clinton in 2016 and published an op-ed in the Daily News during the Republican primary about your experience with Donald Trump. Didn't that lead to your receiving a call from Trump's then lawyer, Michael Cohn,
1: I did a piece, and I had written a book, and so I was sort of like initially interested in in helping promote my book along with, you know, supporting Hillary. Uh, That changed in a short period of time, and I'll tell you why. But um, I wrote an an op-ed, and it was a pretty balanced uh, thing about, you know, Donald was like, opportunities he gave me, uh, you know, um, how he treated me, how he treated others. It wasn't bad, and I got a call from Cohen. And um, it was borderline uh, threatening, but um, I didn't have the time to talk to him, and I told him i have to call him back, and I never did. And that sort of went away.
0: And was that the only one who came after you?
1: No, uh, it wasn't. It, well, Trump himself came after me. I mean, I have uh, in Fresno and in um, um, uh, Santa Barbara or something like that, another uh, uh, California city. He did minutes talking about me. I mean, you know, I was this, I was that, I was dangerous, I was uh, not good, don't harm me, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Basically, I think it was in response to something I had said on one of the TV shows that I did, or maybe it was the New York Times article. There's so much, so much that's gone on. But the thing he really did that was bad was... um, He had his uh, secretary—well, they call her a senior vice president or something like that, but I always knew her as the assistant to his prime secretary, who retired. And she called me, and she said something about what I was doing being on TV. And it was concurrent with my feeling that what I was doing was becoming dangerous. And I said, you know, maybe i better lighten up a little bit on this. And I, had, and I told her, you, you know, it was funny because I was thinking I was going, well, yeah, that's a good idea. I think you should do that because, you know, we have all these emails that you sent me. You remember sending me emails so many years ago, you know, asking if you could uh, talk to Donald about maybe working for him again. And I had like, there were two emails I sent that I think, um, you know, I, I had sent a, a letter, written letter, to my former bosses. I was looking for work, and they were very, you know, perfunctory but complimentary letters. And then I sent this fawning, you know, you know, crawling, uh, loving letter to Trump, because I knew that's what he wanted. And, uh, you know, see if he had anything for me or any idea. So it was too, too silly enough. Well, you know, you wouldn't want them released. <laughs> mm-hmm. I said, well, I really You care. were
0: threatened. Now, you but, say you would. You were devastated after he was elected president, and you wrote an open letter, which uh, the uh, Huffington Post published, to the president-elect, in which you outlined how you thought he could become an excellent president and even win your support. Did he respond?
1: No, no, I got no response from that. I'm not sure I even expected anyone to to respond to it. It was just kind of like... Uh, you know, sort of like getting things off of me, getting some kind of closure. Um, I I don't think I ever believed that he would do anything um, to to become a good president because at that time, at that moment in time, he showed himself. We we knew what he was. When nobody um, by that time, and that's why I say the change in my going, um, after him going public with this stuff, was not because I was trying to sell my book anymore. It was because I wanted to stop him. I thought he was a terrible danger for our country, and I was right. Um, So, you know, you you, you knew what you were dealing with by that time.
0: And have you been surprised by any of the things that have happened since, uh, which seem which bother a lot of people and then don't seem to bother an awful lot of other people?
1: Um, Yeah, I I am surprised. I mean, you know, when he and I was going to say, just following up on that last question, when he was running, talking about running in the, in the 80s, the late 80s, you know, oh, I'm going to run for president, I, yeah, everyone thought it was such a preposterous notion. I was saying to people, you know, it could, it could work because he's got a lot of charisma. He manages to hire the right people, and at the time he was hiring the right people. And if he just let people do their jobs and went around glad-handing and making speeches, which is all he ever did anyway, you know, and taking credit, um, it could be, it could work. And then I realized, no, he could never be president because he couldn't follow the routine. He couldn't, you know, go to meetings that he didn't want to go to. He couldn't, you know, have to answer to the public. And he knew nothing at all about civics. He knew nothing about government. There was never any indication, anything he said, either privately to us or publicly when he started running, that he had a clue about what the, what the Constitution was about. So, no, he couldn't, he couldn't be president, no.
0: Well, it's um, been pointed out that he criticized Barack Obama many times for playing golf as much as he did. And yet, uh, the, his presidency uh, holds the record for most times any president has ever played golf makes Eisenhower and everybody else look like pikers. So does he bother him that the hypocrisy is so obvious?
1: No, no, I don't think he cares. He doesn't care at all because he's, a, you know, he knows that there's a kernel of people that believe everything he says, and you know he's playing to them. He's playing to his base, and the people, the Republicans, the spineless, useless, amoral uh, people that that are in the the Congress now and, and Senate, especially, are so afraid that they'll lose those, those uh, racist, uh, misogynist uh, people that support Trump, that they have to, uh, or they think they have to go along with him. Um, that to me is, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to ask somebody to show character when there's something at stake, but clearly there's no character being shown at all here.
0: Barbara, we have very little time left, but I wanted to ask you about all the stories about people who work in the West Wing, uh, who disagree with Trump, and but stay on anyway to try to make sure that he doesn't make a mess of the country. Uh, is that something that happened in uh, in the business as well?
1: Well, I think, what, you know, in the times that I worked for him directly, like, you know, mostly Trump Tower, and then on the other parts the big project, um, he listened to people. So you can't make a comparison. You know, there was a book written by somebody called Anonymous. and They come out, we're stopping mm-hmm. From ruining the country. Well, then tell us your, goddamn, uh, tell us your name if, if, if you're stopping them from ruining the country. Uh, I don't believe that there's a lot of that going on. I don't have a tremendous amount of respect for anyone that's working in the White House right now. Starting out, yeah, he was going to be president. Yeah, maybe he, he could be kept under control. Maybe good things could be done if you have a Republican uh, agenda. And why not support the, uh, the Republican president? But not now. And and, and people are not stopping him from doing anything, because what could he do that would be any worse than what he's been doing and done?
0: Barbara A. Ress, her book, Tower of Lies, What My 18 Years of Working with Donald Trump Reveals About Him. It is published by Gray Malkin Media. And Barbara, thank you so much for being on our show.
1: Oh, it was a pleasure.
0: And that brings us to the end of our show. A special thanks to segment producer Todd McGovern, who prepared today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and you'd like to hear more about one-hour deep dive conversations, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. And we're also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, leonardlopateatlarge.com. If you'd like to send me your comments about a program or just want to say hello, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Now, before I sign off, I would like to just ask you to step up and support this show and this station that brings it to you. If you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that you hear on Leonard Lopate at large, I really hope you'll go online right now to give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 to help keep the show and wbai on the air and one great way to support us without having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a bai buddy Uh, there are listeners who contribute ten dollars or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on the show as i mentioned at the half anyone who becomes a bai buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, during today's show, we'll receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, Tower of Lies: What My 18 Years of Working with Donald Trump Reveals About Him, by my guest Barbara A. Ress. It's our way of saying thanks, but that's only if you make that call right now. So one last time, the number is five one six six two zero three six zero two. Well, go to to give2wbai.org and be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And thanks. By the way, we're, we're off tomorrow, but we hope that you'll join us again on Thursday when Tom Bowman will discuss his new book called Resetting Our Future. What if solving the climate crisis is simple? We'll see you then.